I'm the music god, CJ Plain. This is The Noise Report. You know what we do here. We laugh, we have fun, we interview cool and interesting people, or pretty much anyone I can con into coming on this mess that I call a podcast. But today, this is next level for me. Um, you guys on the show have heard me talk about this guy repeatedly, endlessly, uh, right up there along with Devin Townsend and Freddie Mercury and Prince and all of these people that are on my wall behind me. Um, this guy takes like multiple cards to list everything he's done. <laughs> um, and we're going to get into all of it. But if you don't know this gentleman, I don't know where you've been or what you've been listening to because <clears throat> Kind of hard to miss him. Um, this is Mr. Jeff Scott Soto, the man, the legend, the guy who could sing a phone book and make it sound like a Grammy record. Um, how are you today? I'm good. And CJ, it's good to know that the uh, the check cleared and you got all the <laughs> all the notes for the introduction of exactly what I wanted you to say when I was coming on. So. <laughs> <laughs> This is literally the first interview that I've ever taken notes for. Normally, I'm just like off the cuff, off the cuff. Yeah. But I'm so erratic that I'm like, you know what? I'm writing this down because I have points that I want to ask about. And if I don't write them down, I'll talk about something else and then, <laughs> and then be pissed at myself later. Which could be more interesting when you think about it. <laughs> um, we just ramble on about the grocery list. Yeah, so I guess for those that have been living under a rock, introduce yourself and I guess give a short background uh, on yourself and some of the completely awesome things that you have done. Well, my name is Jeff Scott Soto. I spent uh, the last 40 years in prison. Uh, for uh, no, uh, um, I actually, it, it's uh, I, I'm actually uh, serious about that. I'm almost I'm going on my 40th anniversary next yeah. year of being in this business, starting with Ingvay Malmsteen in 1984, and yeah, it's been quite a ride. When you when you think, in most cases, most artists they, they're lucky to get five or ten years out of a career, mm -hmm. and. I don't I, I never look at what I have as a career. I always look at it as a work in progress because, um, yeah, I, I can rattle off all the people I've worked with and all the albums I've done, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I'm far from a household name. I'm far from uh, people around the world knowing me like a lot of your posters on the wall and to the to the levels of walking down the street and being recognized. But that being said, I I've had quite the charmed life, charmed career in terms of. I, I've been able to kind of navigate and do things how I I saw them, how I wanted to see them, as opposed to the, there were so many instances in the, uh, especially in the eighties, where the labels or management would they would just pigeonhole you, they they would put you in a in a place you got to do this, you got to just stay on stay in your own lane, and and I was never one of those, and and I really attest that ideal to being such a huge fan of Queen. Queen was were one of those bands. They they were the master they were the jack of all trades and the master of all trades. They were the kind of band that could just do everything and anything, and you believed it. You you didn't think, oh, they're they're stepping out of their their comfort zone. Their comfort zone was extending as much as they could from all the colors of the rainbow musically, and that's exactly what the the, the course that I took as an artist. I always wanted to be known as more than just a metal screamer, a metal singer. I don't want to be known as a pop guy or a, a R and B classical. I want to be known as all of the above. So that's, that's always been my course since day one. And I'm still on it, man. And, and as I said, I, at this age, I probably won't ever be a household name, but I'm enjoying the ride. And, and I'm grateful for people that like yourself, that listen to the music and understand where, where I'm going with it. I think you pretty much, you summed it all up. Like, for me, as a music fan, as a musician, as a songwriter, all of the things that I've done, there are certain people that are, that I put on a pedestal above the others. Mm. Um, not because 
I think they're better or anything else, but they've done something to me that sets them there. Right. Freddie Mercury and Queen. Prince. Rick Rubin. You. And you just summed it up. You've made music that was outside of the box. You've never, you, you've never settled to be one thing. Yeah. When the labels told Rick Rubin, oh, the BC Boys will never work. You can't do that. Right. They told him, you can't have Johnny Cash record yeah. a metal song. You can't have uh, Run DMC record with Aerosmith. That will never, right, right, right. That will never work. Um, Queen, their whole career has yeah. completely defied labels right labels all the borders yeah and and man it's and that's you gotta do what makes what what makes you tick and that's the bottom line you gotta follow your heart you gotta follow your influences you gotta follow the course and and it's what we're gonna talk about on this record today yeah this is the slam album everything we're talking about is alluding to how and why this thing was made and you know again going back almost 40 years ago i started my career as a singer for Ingve Malmsteen, somebody in the metal category, was you know he was at the top of his game, and for me to take a to want to take a left turn and go back to my original influence, I grew up with Motown, I grew up with uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, a lot of pop music, a lot of R and B, soul music, and I I honestly didn't get into hard rock and metal until I was fifteen or sixteen, so I was only a couple years into the resource of what metal gave to me and what brought what it brought to me. And so it was still kind of new. I was still kind of har- harvesting what my personal uh, intake and what I, my contribution was going to be in hard rock and metal. But after a few years, I missed where I came from. I missed using those old influences and the, those old inspirations. And I started saying, you know, I, when George Bernhardt, the, the guitar player from Slam, we're talking about the Slam record now, came to me with some songs. His band, Bo Nasty, just broke it up. And he came to me with all these songs and said, "Hey, I, I got these things. I think you'd be great on them. I, I'd love to see what we could do together." It was there was no real intent in making a new band or project. It was more he was a friend. He wanted to see what we what it would sound like if we did something together, and that's the result of Slam. It eventually turned into a band. We had three incarnations of the band until the demise in 1993. And what this album is full of is all the demos that we put together that you know we we started this whole slam thing when the entire industry musically was changing as far as the rock side of things and anybody and everybody knows from the 80s into the grunge scene the labels basically were not interested in you if you weren't from seattle or wearing flannel and it's (laughs) but the bottom line is um that was one of the biggest I guess, uh, roadblocks for us that nobody wanted to take the gamble or risk on something like this because we really tapped into what a lot of the bands that were doing this kind of stuff were also tapping to, from Extreme to Living Color to Dan Reed Network. Um, There's so many I can name that were within the category. And and it's just, (laughs) they were not ready so much for the mix of soul and rock, soul and funk mixed with rock as much as the what else, you know the the majority of what was going on so right. that's one of the reasons why it never took off but we we stuck to our guns and we just kept building the perfect i guess the perfect beast of what we wanted this band to represent and not being signed you know we just it, it, here we are in 2023 20th century music reached out to us and they said you know through the decades people have copies of these songs on cassette yeah. tape demos that you must have sent out and there's fourth, fifth generation with a lot of hiss. And what do you guys say? We we do a nice, clean, mastered copy of this and get it out to them the way uh, the way that it was it was intended to be heard. Yeah, there are, you know, there's a there's a few that are kind of legendary because uh, the early stuff from Brunette before Johnny right. we did yeah, hard, hard line. You yeah. know, those those still float around, and you could still get. You know, thirteenth and eighteenth generation, yeah, yeah, of those things. Um, you know, and I've often, I've often wondered, you know, at what point are they going to take those songs and do something with? Because you know, Joey and Johnny are both so brilliantly talented. Oh um, yeah, Johnny's but, a good friend of mine. Yeah, I, I, I got a list at the end. We're gonna right on. We're gonna we're gonna do a 
a short little game that I created for this. All right. Um, but what basically what we're here today, Slam, uh, 1991 to 1993 is when this thing was recorded. 16 tracks. Uh, it's an hour and 11 minutes full of really pretty much, I'd say almost a kind of a retrospective of what you've done even afterwards. Like, you know, a lot of your records have kind of followed in stylistically. Like there's a lot of songs yeah. recorded that. And there are songs from this that were actually done and used for other purposes. And again, because when it, when I knew there was a demise of the band in 93, mm-hmm. that didn't stop me from feeling that the songs needed to be heard or, or it should be heard. So I used a few on my solo records. There were two songs that my band, my other band talisman re-recorded and, and kind of made retooled for, for talisman. And yeah, the, these songs to me, they they meant something. They were so important to me that uh, I didn't want them just to fall on the wayside. I wanted them. To, I wanted them to be heard. And now, of course, you'll you'll be able to a b both versions of where they came from and what uh, some of the the fans or some of the people that have my stuff might have heard on the uh, the redos on them. So, the, the let me back up a little bit when we when we first started shopping for a deal, we could not get any interest except for there was one label that offered us a demo deal. Now a demo deal is basically they'll give you X amount of dollars. You go into a studio, you turn in the the, the tape. It's kind of like shooting a pilot for a TV series. Mm-hmm. They they give you the money. If they like it, they then they, you, they have the first right of refusal to sign you. Unfortunately, they didn't sign us. And when we got the money, we didn't go spend it in a studio for two or three songs. We invested into recording gear, the home recording gear. And that's where all these songs are recorded. It, it was George Bernhard that mixed and mastered and did all of that stuff nice. besides recording everything. But backing up again, the the source that we use for all of these things. And when you listen back, you you don't you won't believe the quality that came from such a small machine. It was the old Tascam Porter Studio, the eight track where your master your masters were a little cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And if anybody knows anything about recording and technology and everything the bandwidth of a small little tape like that carrying so many tracks compared to the two inch tape that carried all that information. You're talking about a massive quality loss, but we found a way or George found a way to really emphasize on the quality without it suffering. And and that's why we were able to get away with these songs sounding so good, even in the demo form. It's crazy where technology has gone from, you know, the analog of the seventies and the, you know, the, the real to real. Yeah. To where now you literally can turn a room and yeah. into uh-huh. hundreds and hundreds of tracks. And, and, and it, it harkens back to what Queen had to deal with, the, the, the yeah. lack of technology, the lack of tools, and, and it didn't stop them. Again, right. this is so inspirational for future artists to, to to watch and to know of a band that was able, or even a producer, they mm-hmm. were able to utilize to the death of what they had available to them. And really, you know, the results were just astonishing when you realize how many overdubs and how many stacks (laughs) and mixing down and bouncing tracks that you have to do to create that monstrosity without having the, the tools that we have today and the technology is today. It, It truly is staggering how they were able to pull that off. And, and I love, that's why I really respect and I'm proud of what we achieved here with these songs because right. the amount of work that came in making these songs, it's not even close to what we could we could churn out four albums in that time with today's technology. Right. Yeah, it's 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 crazy to think that there there's literally you know Grammy winning records now that are being yeah. recorded. Billie Eilish, for example, right. recorded it in her bedroom. And right. I have a friend who's a country singer, and he sent me his record. It was so good i mean it's up there with george jones and those guys and right i was like what studio did you record it in? and he's like oh I recorded it in my daughter's bedroom we just you know that's awesome we put, a, we put a bunk bed you know in the living room for her and we just took her room over for two months and i'm like there's no way you recorded this that's amazing yeah. well yeah every one of my vocals since yeah oh i want to go back to um man it's going way back maybe 91 92 Every single vocal you hear on releases that I'm on as a lead vocalist was done 
right here, you know, with my microphone, <laughs> it right. was whatever I had at the time. Of course, it's changed and have, have upgraded and updated since, but right. everything was done on my own without an actual studio. And I, again, I too learned how to be a little more self-contained and not right. have to worry about, okay, I got to book the studio. I got to drive there. I got to get there. You got to watch traffic. I got to make sure that the engineer knows what I need and how to do it. Okay. I want to punch in this line and go back. No, no, no. Wrong one. Let's go. Right. I learned all of that stuff to avoid all that waste of time. And people always ask, how do you have all these releases? How do you do so much work? Because if I do it on my own, I can do it at my pace. And when you've got it down to a science of what works for you, you can, I could record three albums a day at this point, you know, just based on I'm doing it my pace and my own speed. And I don't have to rely on anybody else to, to, to achieve it all. Yeah. I'm, I'm 52 years, I'll oh, 53 in, in April. And I am, I'm going to school now to study sound engineering yeah. and audio production. And, you know, most of my friends are like, why'd you wait till you're 53? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I've done music my entire life since I was 15 years old. I've either been in a band or I've promoted shows or I've done festivals or just something. And yeah. I've just never gone in that direction and then i got into internet radio and podcasting and it's been this super expensive hobby for me yeah like a decade and i finally just thought you know what maybe i should do something to actually get paid for this shit because right 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 you know <laughs> like better, better late than never, you know yeah, better late than never and no regrets it's, it's all it's all part for the course right. no matter when you do it or how you do it it's it's just all about doing it yeah um so this record, you guys are going to have vinyl later this summer for it, right? Correct. And is there a particular site where we can buy this vinyl? Because I need a copy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure where everybody, where, wherever you buy music these days, the majority of people go into Amazon. They'll be able to find it there. Oh. I'm sure you can find it on 20th Century Music's uh, website. I'll always offer links and in, um, in, in ways to to purchase or to find certain things on my on my social media so as long as you do a little digging it, uh, unless it's right in front of you we're, we're not going to send mailers out every week <laughs> that right. shows up to remind you but if you're interested in that kind of stuff it's so easy just look it up and google it and, and to uh to, you'll, you'll be able to find it within pretty easily nice so i have a few random things biker mice from our soundtrack how did that happen? And I guess share some stories from that because I love that damn thing. And I know it's not one of the more widely released right. things, all of that, but it was one of the cartoons that I really loved. And, yeah. you know, for the longest time, I didn't even realize it was. <laughs> it. I get that a lot. Yeah. And then I, when I found out. <laughs> funny I thing is, I'll tell you a funny story before I, before I uh, tap onto that. There are, um, there are times I'll I'll be doing stuff with younger musicians. If I'm doing appearances, uh, as I, I recently did in Bulgaria, and the band that were they, they were my hired backup band. Well, they weren't really hired backup band for me. They were just the hired musicians for an event that I was part of. In terms of, I was one of the singers of many singers, and we're just hanging out. They, of course, they know of me through a few little circles here and there. But for the most part, if they're half my age. They're, they're even younger than my own son. They probably don't really know what I've achieved, what I'm all about, what I've done. And I think it was the bass player. I'm pretty sure it was the bass player. Um, at one point, he came up to me and goes, I just found out that you're the singer on Biker Mice from Mars. Is this real? Is this true? <laughs> I go, yeah. I'm like, Biker Mice, really? You're asking me about this more so than asking me about Ingve or Journey or Trans-Siberian Orchestra or Sons of <laughs> Apollo. And he goes... You have, oh my God, I, I'm actually meeting my hero right now. <laughs> I was his vocal hero because of that cartoon. And and to be honest with you, that was one of the first times my, my son was very young when that came out. That was the one time, the very first time that he actually realized what I did for a living. He actually was, oh my God, my dad sings Biker Mice. Right. Again, forget about all the other achievements and playing in front of big stages and everything. But for a kid, especially my own son, to look at me like, Oh my God, my dad sings for Biker Mice from Mars. It was kind of a cool thing. I got that as just a, a general session. I was supposed to do like one or two songs on it. 
And as we're recording, literally, I literally remember the 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 phone ringing with the producer. Um, basically, all the others that were supposed to be singing on the record were pulling out for uh, scheduling conflicts, uh, loss of interest, negotiation of the what they were supposed to make right. fell through, whatever. So I'm literally at, at the session. He's hanging up the phone, going, "That's great, Jeff. We finished one. Can you do me a favor? I just." this singer just dropped out of this. Would you be able to do one more? I'm like, I listened to it. We would record it. I ended up doing the entire record. <laughs> and I think there were names like Billy Idol and Vince Neil that they had as other singers for this soundtrack. It ended up, I, uh, I sang on the entire thing because people were dropping out for whatever reason. And I'm so proud of that because I, there's, you know, again, there's so many cool songs on there, especially that, that match with the story and match with the cartoon. It was, it just was a, a blast to do. And I got a lot of free uh, toys and figurines and video games of biker mice for my kids. So it was even better. Nice. Yeah, it's just one of them things like destiny, I guess you could almost say. Yeah. That. Um, uh, what else do I have here? The queen concert that you did. Kind of how did explain how that kind of happened? And cause that is one of, to me, that's one of the, defining moments for me in your career like that record it's it has your own unique spin on all of those songs mm. but at the same time you and Howie are so reverent to these songs themselves like you can watching the videos and listening to you sing those songs you can tell how important they are to you and absolutely that you're not just you're not just there. it's not a cover gig for me no no yeah, for, like, and, and for for me when i'm singing queen or even when i'm singing covers mm -hmm. but especially with queen i don't try to reinvent it or try to make it my own i really try to tap into keeping it real and keeping it uh um i guess i don't want to change what's not broken Right. And you can't you can't change things on a Queen song because it's it, you're gonna break it you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna turn it into something that uh, is unfamiliar to most people's ears. So I try to stay as true to the originals when I do Queen songs. I try to stay to whether I'm trying to stay true to how Freddie did in the studio or the way he did it live. I'm I'm always choosing different versions of those songs when I'm performing them live because there were some songs we did that. Queen never did live. So for, for that, I would just stick to the script and, and make sure I delivered them within the context of the original versions. But that that whole thing came about, again, it's a really long, everything I have is a long story. I, I could, I probably have like a four volume book if I ever did right. an autobiography because there are too many details to leave out. But it started in, uh, I'm going to say 97, I think it was, where I reached out with hopes of maybe doing something with Brian May if, if he were if he needed a singer on his solo things because Queen was you know it, it was gone by then it was they had no intention of, of bringing it back and Brian was very nice I, I we we exchanged a few letters back and forth and uh, it was in '99 that I was asked to sing with him at uh it, it was a it was a show to celebrate Freddie Mercury's birthday for the the fan club in England. And on my own time, I flew out and I met Brian for the first time. I sang a couple songs with him and Spike Edney, the guys that, that always, uh, that Spike brings around. Spike is the keyboard player and musical director of Queen. And it was, it was great to finally meet Brian and, and jam with him. From there, I kept in touch. And the president of the Queen fan club in no, no. In 2001, they got the, the star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to go sing with them there. It was here in Hollywood. So it was close to me, finally. I didn't have to get on a flight for <laughs> 11 hours. And uh, and it just extended my, my friendship with the guys. Uh, I finally got to meet Roger, and that's where that whole thing started. It was from that, the president of the Queen Fan Club in England, every year they do a, a Queen convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, she invited me to come and sing a few songs with a Queen tribute band that they had booked for that. And I was more than obliged because anything that has to do with Queen, I'm in. You can count me in. Flew out to do that. And the fans loved it so much. And they, the, the, the fan club president loved it so much. They asked if I would come the following year and do my own with my own band and do a headlining set of all Queen songs. Once again, 
you don't have to twist my arm i'm down right and what one thing i noticed with these queen tribute bands they're pretty much just sticking to the wembley show when they when they play live they they there's all the singers always wearing the yellow jacket you know uh-huh. with the, the fake mustache and and they're doing basically a tribute to those songs that were on that live wembley album but uh i said if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna i'm gonna go deep i'm gonna go deep tracks with a queen crowd and all queen convention crowd these are the the queen like trekkies you know there's yeah. like a star trek convention they know every nuance they know every b-side they know every side project every solo out they know every detail so i knew if i get if i go deep with some of the uh the songs that we we're gonna do they were gonna know them they're gonna sing to every song and i was absolutely right that's why we we did things like uh um too late we did uh dragon attack we did things that you normally wouldn't hear at most queen shows or tours back in the day and so that was it. It was recorded. I didn't know it was being recorded with the audio on a, you know, the, the full on Pro Tools system. I didn't know we had so many. Ca- I saw I knew we had cameras. I didn't know they were actually filming and keeping. Mm-hmm. So from that, we just rounded everything up and we we made our own version of that night. Nice. There is one Queen song. I've never heard it covered. And it it's my favorite Queen song. Uh, and I think in today's society, with everything going on, it's even more relevant mm. now. And I would I would love to hear somebody cover the song Don't Try Suicide. Oh yeah. Because one, you know, everybody talks under pressure. They talk uh, you know, we were Rocky, we were the champions and all that. But that baseline for Don't Try Suicide. Boom, 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 boom. boom. Ding. It's the coolest baseline that I think Queen ever did. And <laughs> yeah. You know, and you got to love a song, you know, where somebody says, all you do is get on my tits. And it's just now, I, that, that I remember when I first heard that and I thought, why is a guy talking about his tits? <laughs> and it, it sounds so strange. I'm like, what? And you, you, had to, you had to wonder how what does that even mean? Right. And it wasn't until my my regular visits to England. That's just a term they use there. Yeah. Oh, you're getting on my tits. You're getting on my nerves, basically, is what it right. means. But we didn't know that in the early 80s yeah. when that, that album, well, it was 1980 when that album came out. I'm like, what the hell did he just say? <laughs> First time I ever went to Australia. Uh, I've been to Australia one time. Uh, I flew to Australia to see Kevin Bloody Wilson in concert because Kevin never tours anywhere other than Britain and Australia. And I was like, I'm going to see this guy before I die. And I went over there. And I went to a pub before the show. And the bartender is like, would you like a glass of piss? And I was like, no. He goes, you don't drink? And I was like, yeah, but not piss. piss. (laughs) He goes, you don't like beer? Oh, beer? Yeah, I'll I'll take a beer. But he goes, oh, I forgot. You Yankees, piss is a different thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. "Yeah, Like, I'm not drinking piss unless I'm like lost in the desert and dying or something, you know? And that's another, it's another one, another expression (laughs) they use where you're taking the piss. Yeah. And again, I, I, what, I'm not taking a piss. I'm, I'm just standing here with my pants on. It's like, no, taking the piss means you're making fun of me. (laughs) But anywho, I, I would love to hear someone do Don't Try Suicide. Just, it's such a great song to me, and I really think with with everything going on in schools today and the bullying aspect and whatnot, it just you know I, I think the message is even more relevant now. I'll keep that in mind. I'll I'll, I'll oh. find a way or a reason to do a cover <laughs> of that song because I I mean I know every lyric, every nuance. Yeah. Of it. it's actually singing in my head right now as we're talking. Right. It's you know it's one of those songs that people talk about Queen. You never hear yeah. them mention that song. You know, well, yeah, like the one I mentioned earlier that we did at the, the yeah. Queen. I think I call it too late. It's called "It's Late," and it was it's one of my favorite yeah. songs from the News of the World album. And I think they might have done it live, but I just I never heard at that point. Never heard them do it live. I'm like, I want to do the song, and not just a medley, not just a snippet. I want to do the entire song, and we and we pulled it off. The I, the poor guys in my band, Howie, Gary, and and Alex. I put them to the ringer. They, yeah. When I sent them all the songs they had to learn for this show, they're like, oh my God, you better be paying us like three gigs worth of worth of salary for this because it's a lot of work. Gary is, you know, Gary is someone I admire Gary so much because he is such a phenomenal musician. Absolutely. On so many levels. And 
again, another person that you never hear in the conversation that really should be in the conversation. I couldn't agree more. I really wish he had a little more legs under him as, you know, with people knowing who he is and it's, that stinks. I want to discuss this really quickly. You've been doing a thing on your Facebook, the soup to nuts thing. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by it because there are a couple of them that I never really listened to before. Mm. I, I knew of them, but I, I guess I just never really listened to them. And there's a few of them that are my personal top 10 records, uh, such as Queen 2. Yeah. The one that stuck out to me, though, and I know you're friends with them, uh, the Saigon Kick record. Saigon Kick is one of those bands, again, that the first time I heard them, I just, I admired them for the same reason as Queen and a lot of the other people I named, because they really just, they covered so much territory on those records and did it in a way that wasn't going to make them superstars, but they Mm -hmm. were just so true to their sound and style and jason is again another phenomenal musician who you just never hear people talk about him enough and <laughs> you know to kind of discuss, jason discuss the list a little bit jason yeah. and gary shut are very similar but in extremely different ways gary shut went to berkeley uh, uh school of music college of music and jason beeler is the, he doesn't know uh, a minor Phrygian, the difference between that and a major seventh, he, he doesn't know theory, doesn't know the terms. Right. Everything Jason does is pretty much off feel. And, and and there were a few things I even called him out on a few times where he's singing a major over minor or minor over major. And he goes, I don't even know what that is. I just, I do music and I do what I do because it feels good and sounds good in my ears. I don't think about it. It's theoretically wrong. It's I'm using right. the wrong phrasing. Of the, and that's what's the brilliance that, that comes out of him in those terms. It, it was kind of like the Beatles. They they were learning chords, but they didn't go to school to learn them. They, did, they didn't go to lessons where they were, okay, this is a, a Phrygian, this is a pentatonic. They didn't learn any of that stuff. It kind of all fell on their laps and they just kept expanding on it as they were experimenting on, experimenting on their own. And that's what Jason does. Somebody like Gary, he knows every nuance of every note, every everything yeah. he's doing is based on the knowledge of how it, building a tree, a musical tree works. And uh, and, and that's, I, I praise Beeler all the time for the fact that he's able to do and pull all of that off without any of the knowledge that you would think it's all premeditated. It's like you knew if that you were doing something that was going to spin around and turn around musically and turn into that. And he goes, I have no clue. It's just, I'm it literally, it's all these notes and ideas in my head that just come out and, and that's what you get in the, the end result. And I praise him for it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So tell me if this is true. I don't know if this is true or not. I think I read somewhere. Ronnie James Deal was kind of the same way, right? Like he couldn't read music or any of that. I don't, I don't really know of his, uh, his background. I, I would imagine he could read music because like myself, Ronnie started as a trumpet player when he was younger. I, I was oh, a trumpet. Okay. I was always a singer, but uh, before I was actually in bands as a singer, right? I was a trumpet player. I, I started learning the trumpet in in the seventh grade, I think, and I played all the way through high school. So playing the trumpet, you have to learn to read music. You have to know what the notes and crescendos and right. uh, retardandos and uh, all the different things that come with with that kind of music, you have to be able to read and you have to be, you have to understand the note selections. So I'm assuming Ronnie, I didn't know how, how far he got with his trumpet playing, but I'm assuming he had to have had some kind of knowledge of how it all works and how it all fits together. Okay. I, I, I just read somewhere and you know, you read stuff and sure. You you never know if it's true or not. And I didn't know that Ronnie was a trumpet player. I knew he started kind of, doo-wop-ish type of right 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 uh, you know um evolved (laughs) yeah um so the last thing i kind of want to get into i call it blurts okay i have a list of names and i'm going to say the name and you just kind of blurt out the first thing that comes to mind got it go let's Uh, do it uh howie simon the king genius (laughs) 
And I say that because he's he's self-proclaimed himself as the king genius. <laughs> and every time he sends me an email or something that comes up with his little moniker, it's just, oh, there's Howie again. <laughs> nice. Um, Mark Martell. Brilliant singer. Absolutely brilliant singer. And and it's 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 weird when you have a natural voice, uh, when you naturally sound so close to somebody like Freddie, mm-hmm. who's impossible to sound like, it's impossible to emulate, it's impossible to step in the Freddie's shoes. And Mark didn't, he never, he never went down that lane. He always did his own music. It was just something that was a, it's a crazy coincidence. And, and it's crazy because even when we did the Queen Extravaganza, there were a lot of songs he never heard. He never, and but when he learned them, it's like, oh, my God, it sounds like you've been studying this. He could do tomorrow. He could do Don't Try Suicide. It would sound just like yeah. Freddie because he just has that natural nuance on how to tap into Freddie without even trying. And not just not just saying like Freddie. He looks like Freddie. Like in so many, like not an identical twin, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just- and that to me comes from when you're when you're doing when you're doing <laughs> a, a, a a tribute or a paying homage to a, a particular artist, the person just naturally starts looking like that. I remember this, uh, the singer Hugo that was in a band called Valentine, yeah. very reminiscent of Steve Perry. And he's been doing the journey tribute for so many years. Yeah. He looks like Steve Perry when he's singing those songs, because you, it's almost like your image morphs into the person that you're paying tribute to. Um, A gentleman who I have become a massive fan of, uh, since he started, and another one who just I, I'm blown away by uh, Dino Jalusic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's be difficult to just come with a single word to describe him because, again, he's one of those other. He can. He's not just a singer. He's an amazing yeah. producer, an amazing songwriter, amazing musician. It's almost like he's he was born from. It, it, not not from parents. He was born from a a, <laughs> a music book. He was born of the 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 knowledge and the 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 natural gift that comes from being able to do everything and anything. And he's such an incredible talent. He's a, he's a dear friend, and I, I champion him. I I it's it's weird because in normally normal circumstances, if I didn't know him, you'd normally would think, oh, this kid has everything. He has everything I always wanted. He's doing everything I always wish I was able to do at that age. And you'd be kind of jealous or envious. And I, mm-hmm. it's the absolute obvious, uh, you know, obvious, the absolute opposite with him. I'm like, dude, you are so good. Just keep killing, keep doing it. You know, I, I give him the advice, watch your back, you know, just yeah. make sure you're always protecting yourself because you're so good. Everybody's going to be clamoring and clawing to try and get their, their mitts on you so yeah just watch your back and just keep doing what you're doing because it's working yeah i i i love that animal drive record so much and then it's to see his evolution kind of mm. coming up you know of of doing the tso stuff and doing his solo stuff and then <clears throat> the videos y'all kind of did during quarantine with joel and in those guys, yeah. you know, the, the Jane cover and right, right, right. the Boston cover that they did was just that's like one of my all time favorite records. And they just that was such a fucking crazy cover with that group of um because it was him and Joel and uh Mike and yeah. Anyways, um, Dino is a he's a he's a total musicologist, and and what another thing that we have in in absolute common is our love for variety for different genres. Yeah. He, you should hear them. He, he sings the hell out of Stevie Wonder and and I and know. other formats that are not metal that are not hard rock. Yeah. And th- again, this comes from that world of bring it all in, bring in all the tools and all the tricks and trades that you can make yourself be a little more unique than the next person. Um. Next name on the list, Alessandro Del Vecchio, or Del Vecchio. <laughs> Del Vecchio, yeah. Del Vecchio. Um, Beautifully talented individual. Yeah. It, 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 and beautifully talented, but also beautifully gifted as a person. He's he's one of those, he's the marriage of the perfect person in terms of somebody you want to hang out with, somebody you want to be around, but also somebody you want to work with all the time. And that's, uh, I I. I can't say enough nice things about Alessandro. He he gets a, a bit of a raw deal because he does a lot. 
he does a lot for a lot of people and people say that he's he's starting to sound, it just sounds like everybody's doing the same it's not cookie cutter as far as i'm concerned when he writes for other people he writes for their strengths and the things that make them tick as artists yeah. he doesn't write for solo albums that, that he's okay take this song take this song make it work for yourself i don't i don't see that at all with him yeah like he's always been he's always struck me as so down to earth so real so humble like you know, this game's not working for me. I, I, I'm I'm giving way more information, way more answers than just blurts. <laughs> <laughs> um, next name on the list, Eric Martinson. Jesus, again, another guy, just so yeah. brilliantly talented, and as a songwriter, as a producer, and now again as a like the other people I keep bringing up when they are behind the scenes, an engineer, a, a mixing engineer, a mastering engineer. He, he's doing it all. He's He's grown so much since the first time I saw him playing as a singer for a Europe tribute band many, many moons ago in Sweden. And uh, I got a funny story I'll throw in since we're talking about Eric. His name is Eric Martinson. We already have for many decades a singer named Eric Martin. And everybody knows and everybody's always seen Eric Martin as ageless and timeless. You see Eric, you go, God, has he aged at all in in 40 years? (laughs) He's eight, he looks like he's maybe 10 years older in, in the past 40 years. And he's always got that forever youthful uh, appearance. And Eric Martinson was the same. He was maybe in his late 20s, but he looked like it was 12 when I met him. Yeah. And so I, I, I was introduced to him by Marcel Jacob, my my former uh, talisman buddy. And, and I maybe his English or the interpretation didn't come across the right way. I said, oh, Eric Martinson, man, you you have Eric Martin's disease. And it was one of those, ah, okay, I just met, met one of my musical heroes, Jeff Scott Soto, and he said, I have a disease. He didn't take, he right. didn't understand what I meant by it. It's like, you look like you're a kid and you'll forever yeah. look young. And even today, you, you look at him, he has an age and he's probably in his 40s by now, but he looks great and he sounds great. And, and, and going back to how we started, he's grown so much as a writer, singer, uh, band leader, all of the above. He just does everything. Producer, he does everything. I I tease Mitch Malloy about that very thing because Mitch absolutely from from the moment that Jerry introduced Mitch in Metal Edge to now, yeah, looks like he's aged about. Yeah, Mitch Malloy has Mitch Malloy's disease. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he looks like he's aged about nine days. And when yeah, I yeah. you know, I asked him, I was like, "So, uh, uh, you built your house on the fountain of youth, right?" Because he goes, what? I was like, dude, you haven't aged at all. Like, and his voice hasn't either. His voice yeah. hasn't. <laughs> you know, it's like sounds the same. I, I sang background on the on the very first uh, is when he first got the the major deal right. uh, with RCA, and I sang on backgrounds on that album, and his voice sounds the same now as it sounded then. It's insane. Yeah. Um, the last name on the list, and I saved him to last because I actually share a birthday with this gentleman, okay. uh, Mister Mike Portnoy, and. I ask about him mainly because my best friend is the biggest Dream Theater fan in the world. And we just went last week to see Dream Theater and Devin and them guys. And um, Planky kind of talked the whole time about, you know, Dream Theater with Mike and Dream Theater. Yeah. With Mike. And I was like, well, it's still Dream Theater with Mike. It's just sure. a different Mike. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. We also, Planky and I were in Battle Creek the last time you guys played at the music. Oh, Battle cool. Creek. And, uh, you <laughs> every I was standing by the curtain because every time you would kind of go sit down during the solos, I was trying to get your attention because I've been trying to get an interview with you literally for like 10 years. And, you know, through this side or the other thing, it's sure. just it worked out. And I was literally like this. Oh, geez. I wasn't trying to be rude about it because I right. we're doing a show and all of that. And, um, but I, you know, it was such an amazing show. Thank you. Um, it was the first time I'd ever actually gotten to see you perform live. Um, so it was even cooler that, you know, it was Billy and you and right. Ron and everybody. And you had one of my favorite guitar players, Tony, opening, which sure. is more insane. Um, so anyways, your thoughts on uh, Mr. Portnoy? <laughs> well, initially, I mean, the, the, the first blurt that I would think is the first word that comes to mind is legend and Mike reinvented the approach to, especially to prog music 
but more so to hard rock drumming. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's unabashedly always a, a hardcore fan of the people that he loved growing up. And he's always giving them props. And there's there's so many musicians you wouldn't think would be his musical heroes or inspirations. But when you corral them all together, it, it starts making sense of how he was able to reinvent the approach to playing drums, especially the hard rock music or to prog music. And that band was was one of those bands. You know, Rush had their thing and how they did it. Dream Theater took it to a different level, to a different mm-hmm. stage. They were able to where Rush, the heaviest things that Rush would do became some of the lightest things that Dream Theater would do. And so they mm-hmm. took a they took a a format and a genre and they really opened it up and they 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 were so influential. So Mike was a legend for so many years, way before I even got to even dream of working with him. Right. And for him to invite me into this band, he, it was Mike that pulled me into Sons of Apollo. It was there was no audition, there was no Mike knows what he wants when he he's played with everybody and anybody he knows everybody in the business. And so for him to see me singing every night, opening up for the the winery dogs in 2016 in South America, he already had it in the back of his mind. I'm I I need Jeff for this new thing, for this new thing that we're going to be uh, going for. And that in itself, I, I have, I have no words for the, the respect for the, attention and the validation i got from mike that you're the guy you're that you don't have to audition we don't have to see if this chemistry that none of that you're the guy for this and look how it turned out he his visions were his it was spot on his visions are there for the artwork it's it's for so many different things that makes that band tick and and i'm just i'm just flabbergasted that they would ask me to be a part of that and i i, I did everything and anything, everything and every anything that I could to prove myself that he made the right decision to have me in there. Yeah, because some of some of those songs are they're very technical. They're very kind of on a different level than yeah. what you normally singing. And and I'm not saying you know I I don't say that to be mean or rude, but it's like you know when you transition from being kind of a straight rock singer or a straight funk singer into some of the stuff that Billy and Ron and, and Mike can do on the prog side of it, you know, the difficulty scale <laughs> kind of goes up exponentially with having to match that level um, with the time changes. Let, let me give you a little food for thought on the, and exactly what you're saying there. If you think about it, and if you listen to pretty much 95% of the songs that I'm singing on Sons of Apollo, you'll hear that I'm not singing over any strange time signatures or any the every when when I'm singing, it's the straight part of the song. It's 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 the meat and potatoes of the song right. is, is there when I'm singing. It's when I'm not singing, that's when all the kitchen sink stuff gets thrown in. <laughs> that's when they that's when they they go crazy musically and technically because they want the song to be focused on when the singing's going on, that that's the, that's the the core of the song. You need to harvest that and hone that in and remember it. So that was intentional that we're just going to keep it straight. We're going to keep it uh, to a point where the average listener, you can, you can grab them and hold on to them. Now, if you grab them and hold on them when the singing's there and the other stuff starts coming in, that's the next step. That's the next trick. And they're going, Oh my God, I never expected it to turn into this and go into that arena so that's what the beautiful thing about sons of apollo is uh it's it differs from dream theater in that sense where dream theater would always use a lot of technical time signatures even during the vocals with mm. sons of apollo we can't, they don't keep it straight because i can't do that stuff i can't follow the the course of different oh, no, times i'm not saying that at all because no, and no I'm, I'm i'm just letting you know and letting anybody listening or watching this know it's mainly just to to make sure that the core of the songs when I'm singing are the part the memorable parts of the song, and then let those guys fly and do their thing on the other on the other parts of the song. And it's it's a great blend of 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 the two worlds as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um. So to wrap all this up, where do they find you social media wise? Where do they um kind of keep abreast, for lack of a better word? of yeah what you have going on tour wise music wise uh 
all of the different things because you, you're like the hardest working man in music, man. Like, you, well, you I, I always tell people records, you know, <laughs> I always share my uh, when I share my socials, I always was able to say any if you follow me on, or if you find me on the socials, if it's got a blue check mark, then, you know, it's me. Unfortunately, I can't say that about Twitter anymore because I'm right. not going to pay for a, a check right. mark. I mean, it's not that important to me. It's important for people to know that it's really me. And th that's what those check marks represent. But if somebody can just buy one and say it's me, it, it's there's really no reason or I'm not. I, there's no point. I, I I proved myself of who I was and and had enough of a following to earn that blue check mark. I should have been able to keep it. So, so right. you look for me on the socials. You see a blue check mark. That's me. And everything I do is is on. It's it's literally uh, as it's happening. When I get something and I need to promote it, it goes on there before it, it ends up on any websites or any other sites that uh, that share that information. So if you need to find out what I'm doing, where I'm going to be, what's going on in the near future, my socials are the best place to find all that information. It's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter still, but Twitter, I don't have the blue check mark, but it's you, <laughs> you can tell it's me. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you so much for doing this. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, this is Mr. Jeff Scott Soto, uh, formerly of Melmstein, Eyes, Talisman, Takara, Humanimal, Boogie Nights, Wet, Sons of Apollo, TSL, Soto, and a whole laundry list of other amazing projects that you've <laughs> been on. Um, I just kind of just wrote a few down off the top of my head. Right on. Um, but um, I, I'm, again, I'm so honored to have you here. The Slam absolutely rocks it. It sucks that it took 30 years for it yeah, to yeah, yeah. Right a day. Um, definitely check this thing out. It's self-titled Slam. Uh, it has a very cool graphic on the front, kind of a heart with uh, some steampunk other stuff going on. Um, so cool concept, all of that. Uh, who are the other – I guess kind of touch on real quick the other three guys in the band. Uh, I guess well, I the core of the band was George Bernhard and I. We we started it, uh, <clears throat> and he did all the drum programming. Again, we're going back to those those old formats of recording. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the luxury of uh, studios and live drums and mics and doing it the way you want to do it when you have a big budget. Right. So he programmed all the drums. I did whatever little keys were necessary. I did all the vocals. So it was a two-man operation for the most part. George played bass on uh, on the earlier stuff. The first incarnation of Slam was uh, was were, was two guys from uh, from Connecticut, Craig Polifka and Chris McCarvel. Chris McCarvel played bass, and he's gone on to play with House of Lords, Dawkins, and so many other things on his own. And they were the first incarnation with our with a drummer named Bart, Mark Bistany. And when that didn't work out, we replaced. Uh, we were yeah we got the bass player name his name was Ricky Walking he was in the the third phase the second and third phase of the band and Gary Shutt was in the second one Gary was in it for a shorter time because we were working on songs and and again it was one of those things that didn't really gel he he could play funky stuff he could think funky but it wasn't coming from an organic place right. and everything that George was coming up with he wanted to make sure we kind of clicked on the same within the same platform mm -hmm. and so gary was only there for a few months and then we decided we're not going to get a second guitar player we we kept it as a four-piece band so the the core band as far as i'm concerned the real version of slam were the four of us me george bernhardt ricky walking and mark bistany awesome uh mr jeff scott soto as always you know how we end here be well treat each other with kindness remember that no matter how bad your life is or what you're going through music heals Right on. Thanks, CJ.